Have you noticed anything creepy about the twins, apart from the fact that they're twins? Just because they're twins doesn't automatically make them creepy. It does a little bit. Yeah. When I was your age, television was called books. Happy New Year. Happy 2022, everybody. This is episode 44 of the Book Exchange Podcast. My name is Jude Joseph Lovell. I'm the co-host and co-founder of this podcast, and I'm gonna, going to immediately welcome in my brother, my mate, my twin, John Lovell from Easton, Maryland. John, good morning. Are you with me? hey Happy New Year, everyone. Uh, and I'm going to immediately, spe- speaking of immediately, I'm going to immediately ask you a question. Are we on 44? I thought maybe we are. <laughs> it could be 43. Um, anyway, it might be 43, but. Yeah, I, I'm asking because I put a little teaser out on social media stuff, and I said 43. So, folks, you know, the usual production values here right out of the gate. So, <laughs> DIY all the way, baby. That's right. Uh, actually, John. You are correct. It is not 44. It is 43. So I'm sorry about that. Not going to edit it. I think we're doing okay. But I would like to welcome everybody back to Book Exchange Podcast. This is episode 43, not 44. And the official name of the episode here is, and now for something a little different, the BXC 2022. So we're, John, I'm going to start things off by doing just like a little bit of a reboot, if you will, for this show, um, if you don't mind. We have been away for 33 days um, over the, the Christmas holiday first and then battling with some, uh, you know, personal issues on both sides. We had some experiences with the p- pandemic. And, uh, John, I'd just like to sort of generally but public, publicly inquire, is everybody okay in your household right now? Yeah, thanks, man. We, we are finally on the mend. As, as you know, you know, we, we were hit pretty hard by the by the COVID, you know, virus over, over just around Christmas time. Um, one of us in particular, we had a hospital stay in there. So, um, yeah, it got, it got a little bit rough for us. Like, like it has for many, many people. So, but we're finally, uh, on the mend. Uh, one of us is not quite a hundred percent, but, but rapidly approaching it. So I'm happy to say that. And I just hope that everyone, I, I, I wish and hope everyone out there stays safe and has been able to get through, you know, these last, this last month or two without too much damage, but thanks for asking. We're doing pretty well. Good. I'm glad to hear it. And my family, we had some illnesses, not quite the same degree as with John's, but we're doing okay. And we're very happy to be back. Now I'm going to get to the something a little different, but I'm going to do a little brief recap here. So first of all, I want to say, I don't know if we ever discussed this on the show, John, but the, the opening song there, which is the standard tune we use for most of our episodes, just for those who are fans of the show. And in case anybody ever wondered, that song is by a band called the hold steady from Minnesota originally. And um, the song is called stuck between stations. And that's one of our favorites. And uh, John and I really love that song because you hear the opening line from the song is uh, 
Lately, I've been feeling that Sal Paradise was right. And that's one of our favorite sort of rock and roll literary references. The singer and the songwriter Craig Finn is referring there, of course, to the um, protagonist from Jack Kerouac's famous novel On the Road. And John and I have sort of bonded both musically, rock and roll wise and in literary terms over the whole Steady's music. So if anybody had ever wondered, that's why we use that song uh, called Stuck Between Stations by the Hold Study. And it's nice to bring that back. Uh, do you have anything you want to say on that or can I go on? No, I'm, I'm just glad that you brought it up and kind of clarified that. But yeah, it's uh, it, that, that one has always stuck out to us. And I think it, it, it just felt right when we got the show started. Yeah, there's something about the spirit of that song as well. But like it's, it was really kind of a, a fusing of like our rock interests, our music interests and our literary interests. And so I'd like to transition there. This is the Book Exchange podcast. It's the show where two identical twin brothers guide you like two twin Virgils that John said in episode one or two Virgils for the price of one. I, I always was very uh, fond of that line of John's. We guide you through the book, the world of books literature, reading, sometimes writing, and appreciation for books and that whole world of, uh, of reading and literature. And um, I'd like to just administratively, if you would like to leave us a voicemail or check out our site, remember it is uh, anchor.fm forward slash book dash exchange, B-O-O-K dash X-C-H-A-N-G-E. Um, you can leave us a voicemail there on any of our shows, or you can check out our full, you know, our full catalog so far and be sure to send us any feedback through email. It's book exchange twins book exchange with the next twins at gmail.com. And we'll receive your email. We can use it on air. Now this, this show is now being broadcast into 26 countries around the world. Most recent country that we recently added is Poland. So we'd like to welcome back all of our international listeners, we are very happy to be back at it again. So today, amen. go ahead. Amen. Amen, brother. I, I, I'm glad that you kind of crafted that intro and, you know, did, got through the housekeeping stuff and just kind of explained what we're all about. This is now, you know, we've now been doing this for nearly two years. So, you know, we're maybe we're starting to get the hang of it a little bit, even though um, I'll, you know, we botched the episode number at the beginning, but but I love that we're going to keep that in there because that's just who we are. This is just homegrown. Yeah, I mean, why well, fix it? You know, my memory stinks. I've said it before on the show. So, ladies and gentlemen, today we're going to do something that um, is going to be really fun for us. It's a bit more of a potpourri. We went through all kinds of uh, back and forth about what the title should be, grab bag or, you know, a mulligan stew, potpourri, mix and match, whatever. We're going to go into a, several different topics today on this episode. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that, John. Number one is just to get kind of get our sea legs back and uh, to sort of celebrate back being into the podcasting again and doing something that has really been a bomb for us for the last couple of years, especially as it sort of coincides with the whole global pandemic. So it's really exciting to have this kind of conversation. And the other thing is, you know, John, this podcast was founded on an ongoing conversation between you and me. And I'll let you come on this, comment on this in a second by way of intro. A, a conversation we've been having, as we point out many times, for almost 50, 50 years, a little more than 50 years, you know, ever since we were old enough to be able to talk about books, is in the picture that we use as our logo. And, right. you know, I mean, 
so far in the in doing the podcast, we've been pretty good about you know having a topic or two that we're going to zone in on specifically. But John, the fact of the matter is that as long as that conversation's been going on, you know, at least fifty percent of them, if not more, are not just focused on one or two things. We have had so many literary conversations that ran the gamut out of you know several topics, and we just yammered on forever and ever. And then <laughs> we both decided that it might be fun to do a podcast episode that was a little bit more in keeping with those conversations that we've been having all along. So we got several topics, actually three, that we're going to hit today. Um, but we're going to be kind of bouncing around, and that I'm saying that because that doesn't feel that you know off base to you and me over the years, does it? No, not at all. And 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 I like everything you've said up to this point. That's that's well put. And I think obviously uh, you've you've nailed the character of the podcast well. And uh, we are glad to have you know people back listening to us again. Um, but yeah, this is. I think this is going to be fun. It's not, it's not quite our usual format. Normally we have just a particular topic that we decide to dive into. And as with most of them, there, there are millions of directions you can go within that one, you know, category or genre or whatever it might be. But yeah, I, I mean, we tend to, you, you mentioned it at the, at the outset, you know, sometimes the lines blur for us very easily between movies, books and music, you know, uh, other it, books and all other forms of art really and 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 entertainment so that's what this show is going to be you know we got in one of one of our topics is sort of in response to uh you know a, a re, not a request but a suggestion that was made by one of our listeners one of them is uh a little bit more philosophical in nature which we sometimes you know kind of take a step back and looking at questions about why we read the way we do so we'll get into that territory a little bit in a fun way. And then um, the other, you know, I did tease this on social media. Uh, there's, there, there are a couple movies that we wanted to talk about that connect to the uh, literary world in more ways than one, but I'm sure you're going to set th that all up. But yeah, we, we I think this is going to be a little looser and um, you know, I'm with you. I'm, I'm, it's been a long time. You said 33 days and I mentioned to get back into the conversation, you know, via the book exchange. So let's go. Yeah, well, I can hear you're ready, John, and I and I am too. So yeah, I'm gonna set it up a little bit, a little bit further. Although it, it's kind of set up, but um, but let's do this, John. Let's first talk really quick about what we are reading right now. So we are gonna adhere to that part of the format. Uh, why don't you start us off? Tell us what you're reading and and what it's like, and then I'll do the same. We'll take a break, then we'll come back and we'll we'll do our you know potpourri. Yeah, that's great. Uh, so I'm currently reading um, a book that you gave to me. We have it's been mentioned on the show many times. It may be mentioned again on this uh, podcast episode. We'll see. But we have a tradition that we sort of call uh, using the same name of the podcast. We have what, what together what we call the book exchange, where you know when whether it's our birthday or Christmas, we just literally exchange books, and we've done that for so many years. You know, I can't even remember when that started. Uh, <laughs> But uh, so I'm going back to a book that you shared with me. I, I, I saw it because you wrote a note in the front of it in 2018. And it's a book by, called SPQR, uh, A History of Ancient Rome. And it's written by the eminent uh, British uh, scholar of ancient times, uh, Mary Beard. So apparently Mary Beard is not, she's, she's at Cambridge. She's, a, she's an expert on 
on ancient civilizations, in particular the Roman one. Uh, and I guess she's a bit of a not a not really a celebrity, but she's uh, well known. She's she's you know been on TV many times in series and interviews talking about Roman history. So this book, in some ways, feels like sort of a culmination of her lengthy and and apparently distinguished career. SPQR. I, I should have the Latin for that handy, but I don't. But what it, you know, that is the famous sort of, uh, I don't know if slogan's the right word, but um, we'll just go with it. Like slogan that the Roman Empire used, and, it, and it, it's translated in English to the Senate and the people. Oh. And so, you know, you, you see SPQR, you know, chiseled on monuments everywhere all over, you know, the Mediterranean kind of one of the hallmarks of ancient Rome, but this is a, a fascinating kind of sweeping look at the Roman Empire, but it, it focuses a lot on how, how this one really kind of small town in Italy managed to somehow conquer the known world at the time, and just how did that happen? How did Rome become Rome? And, uh, you know, it, there's so much. It's a very dense book. I'm really enjoying it. It's, it's slow reading, but it's fascinating. And I'll just say, you know, I can't, I can't recap the whole thing in this small space. we got to move on. But I'll just say reading this book is just a, one of the th many things that's astonishing to me is how, how little has changed, really, in the political arena from ancient mm. times until now. It's just it's, it's absolutely incredible. Just, you know, there's so much. You just kind of shake your head in recognition that so much of the, uh, uh, of the intrigue and the kind of, you know, conniving in the, and the uh, negotiations and, and that, that, you know, happened in the Roman government and the corruption, all of it. It just, it just seems so weirdly familiar for such an ancient civilization. But anyway, uh, this was an inspired choice by you. It's a really fast at the Roman empire. And that's, that's a subject that, I really haven't looked at in depth or read about in depth maybe ever for a very, very long time, maybe since my college days when, you know, we were, we, we read some of the ancient masters, but nowhere near enough. But so it's been really great to kind of dive into this and just understand more about the Roman empire. So that's what I'm reading. Great choice. Thanks for giving it to me. Now it's your turn. Well, the more the things change, the more they stay the same is the great Neo Peart of Rush wrote in the song circumstances you know maybe not the only person to observe that but <laughs> he did it in a pithy way in that great song and i'm gonna work a rush quote in wherever i can so yeah well you know if that if that is an inspired reading it was definitely inspired by your reading when i picked it out for you because you're the type of guy that would take something like that on and it sounds like a great book i know mary beard is a big name like you said and uh you know just to just just to imagine there's a very famous kind of all world book that I think neither of us has has read before in the in the, the the annals of history books called The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, right? By Edward Gibbon. Right. And it's uh it's very famous. And just to just to imagine the church spot to say, you know what? I'm gonna I, I know that I know Edward Gibbon's book is out there, but I'm gonna do my history of Rome. <laughs> that kind of yeah. tells you all you need to know about Mary Beard, but uh apparently she's up for it. So um well, yeah, and, that sounds and, great. Really quickly on that note, she does. She references that that great work, of course, in her introduction. And it's interesting. She she says, you know, that that book is really focused on how Rome fell, whereas mine is focused on 
how did Rome become Rome? So there was there there is a little bit of a different uh, objective in the two books, but uh, I just thought that was interesting that she pointed out in the introduction. Yeah, good point. Yeah, it, it sounds like they do have different focus. Well, anyway, just to keep things moving, so I am at the tail end of my annual tradition called Dickens Fest. Um, it's in its twentieth year. This is my tradition that I've been keeping for 20 years, like I just said, uh, of reading one novel or book by Charles Dickens. Um, I'm going to expand it a little to be about Charles Dickens. Also, we might talk about that later. Every year. So I try to take on some of my Dickens every year. And I've read all of his novels and many, many of his short works this year. And so I've started to circle around and go back to rereading his novels, which was part of my original point i thought his books would be worth rereading over the over the decades so i am finished getting to the end of the novel bleak house it is an absolutely staggeringly huge novel my my version is actually your version i borrowed it from you 918 pages of minuscule print um of one of dickens kind of most famous stories that's basically about the law and the byzantine legal system in england and he put together a whole pastiche of, you know, feels like hundreds of different characters rotating around this uh, sort of everlasting, never ending suit in the court of chancery in England. And it's a story about that. And um, I'm getting to the end of it. All I'll say is I'm getting to the end of it. I'm feeling kind of reflective on the whole Dickens Fest tradition. I thought I was going to do an essay maybe for the magazine I write for at the outset about the 20th year of Dickens Fest. And how excited I was. Didn't really feel anything you know, coming together then. I've been reading the book for the last four weeks. I'm in the last 120 pages or so of it. And as I'm getting to the end, I'm kind of like, man, you know, I love doing this, but it is one hell of a slog. And why am I doing this exactly? So I've been thinking about not doubting it, but I'm thinking about trying to set down some of my thoughts around the tradition of Dickens Fest and what's it doing for me, you know? And I, so I'm having thoughts around that. And I'll just kind of leave it there. Just getting to the end of this really long novel. Nobody I know would sit through Dickens novels, let alone every year. Um, you would just go, you know, out of your head reading this book. <laughs> um, but it's just interesting. And I, I, I do have reasons why I want to continue to do it. And I like the tradition. So that's where I'm at. I'm just wrapping up uh, Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Yeah, so, you, you really, you really got to love Dickens a lot to read Bleak House even once, let alone twice. <laughs> However, you know, he is one of those writers who, I mean, it's, it's, it's in some ways it's connected to why you would read, read about ancient Rome, right? I mean, uh, like that quote from with each other, the, you know, the deeper down you get in people, the more they're like everybody, you know? And uh, something about, you know, reading the masters, um, you know, it's just going to, you're the, some of the uh, struggles and some of the questions that they wrestle with. And, you know, there's no denying that Charles Dickens knew how to, how to express those in a really interesting way. And I think that's, that's probably part of what appeals to you and the reason why you do what you do, but we're looking forward to when you unpack that and write, write it up for the magazine at some point. But Anyway, I salute the whole, it connects in some ways to what we're going to be talking about later. You know, this idea of, you know, having a project that, uh, that you go back to in your reading, but we'll get to that. So anyway, I think that's a, yeah. a noble suit. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll unpack it in the writing. Like I said, hopefully, um, 
But just as one example, like, you know, there was there are many pioneering things in Dickens work and there are lots of reasons to read his work even today. And one of them from Bleak House specifically is a lot of people don't know this, but Bleak House has a character who's one of the earliest um, detectives in English fiction. You know, wow. there's a character called Inspector Bucket who undertakes a murder investigation in Bleak House. And he's one of the earliest manifestations of like, a, you know, a cop. You know, or like a, a a crime, so sort of an early version of kind of a crime thriller, if you will, if you can have a crime mm-hmm. thriller that lasts 918 pages. But that was one of the first manifestations of a <laughs> of a you know kind of a PI kind of character. This guy, Inspector Bucket. So that's just one example. But anyway, let's cut it off here, John. We're going to take a quick break, listen to some brand new music from Boyd's Panda. That's my yeah, son, yeah. Patrick. And we're going to come back and take on our uh, grab bag of topics. fancy setup here john we've got three topics in our kind of lightning round or whatever you if you can call it a lightning round in a two-hour podcast um, but there's three things that we're going to take on john started to allude to them earlier so the first thing we're going to do is we're going to have a little recap live and on our show of the activity the annual activity around christmas part of what gives this podcast its name john and i engaged in um he said it earlier our annual christmas Christmas book exchange with an X. So we're going to do a little recap of our, of our selections for each other and just kind of do a read on, on why we chose them. That's topic. Number one, topic. Number two, we're going to do something that I don't think I have ever done before. And that is, we're going to talk about some loose meaning we're not going to be held to it by iron uh, reading resolutions for, for the new year, 2022. Some things we're going to try to do as readers specifically in the year coming up. So we're going to have an interesting discussion around that. I have three, technically four, and John, you have whatever you have. And then the last topic is going to be, as John mentioned, we're going to talk about two films that are drawn from literary sources, old literary sources that we have both seen recently. And we're very interested in seeing, uh, well, most of us in one case, uh, but that we've both seen and we have um, not really discussed. So we're going to at at length. So we're going to have share some reactions to those two screen adaptations of literary works. How's that sound to you? Sounds great. I just want to take a brief second to, to shout out to your, you mentioned it earlier, but I got to shout out to your, your son, Patrick. Patrick, thanks for contributing to the show. Um, loving the music that you've been putting together. Uh, he is—he's a young guy, but he's rising 
<laughs> in the ranks, as they say. And uh, he's my godson. Very proud of him. And I just want to thank him for contributing to the show with his awesome music, his his own compositions. It's it's fantastic. So thank you, Patrick. Yeah, I appreciate that. That was one of his longer pieces. He was worried because it was 45 seconds. I was like, dude, it's our show. Let it roll. We'll take it. We'll take it. <laughs> so, all right, John, let's talk. Let's uh, bring listeners into the fold here with our Christmas exchange. So every year for our birthday, uh, we call it the birthday exchange, and then we do a Christmas exchange. And as John mentioned, we've been doing it. I have no idea when it started either. A long time. Um, and we give each other books anywhere from – it's usually – it's anywhere from two to sometimes we go crazy five or six, but it's usually somewhere around two or three books per exchange. And we did it this Christmas and John, I'm just going to flip it over to you and I'm going to ask you to share with our listeners the two selections that you chose for me this year and why you chose them. So go for it. All right. Well, first, first I just make a quick comment. Like, uh, I love this exchange uh, tradition that we have going between each other. And one of the great things about it is that just like this show, I mean, there's literally, there are no, there are no walls around the edge of the empire. There are no, there are no boundaries at all. It, the, the book, the, the books that you may get from the other could be about anything and <laughs> any genre, any topic. It just all depends on what the, uh, what the giver is sort of feeling and it, it, it's mysteriously sort of connected to to the way that we're sort of connected. Like we just have an instinct about what the other likes to read, even if it's something they've never read before. So it's kind of fun, you know, to take part in it because, you know, especially with you, because it's like I'll see a book and I'll be like, well, I, I know Jude doesn't know a damn thing about that topic, but for some reason I think he's going to love digging into it. So, you know, I'm going with that. So. <laughs> he doesn't do know. It. He doesn't know he wants this, but he wants this. <laughs> right, exactly. That's kind of how we do it, and I just say that because there, you know, you're going to hear even in this in this brief uh, edition of the book exchange. I mean, there are some wild picks, but you just kind of, you know, all bets are off with the book exchange. So you know, sometimes it's a little more, you know, quote unquote obvious, and sometimes it isn't. So. Yeah, yeah John, two... I to, I, sorry to cut you off, John. I just want to add a quick interjection. I forgot to say. So what we're going to do is I'm going to have you share the titles. Then the other guy is going to quickly cover kind of how he reacted to those titles. And then we'll go back and then go back. All right. Yeah, that's fine. So the two I picked for you for this, this last version of the Christmas exchange, one, you know, I use the word obvious and something, you know, we're both kind of interested in the literary world. Right. And I mean that literally. So like literature around the world. And so we talked about this briefly in one of our past shows. You know, we pay attention to things like who won the Nobel Prize, for example. So th this past year, the winner of the Nobel Prize was a writer from Tanzania, Africa, by the name of Abdul, Abdul Razak Gurna. And we were both kind of fascinated by that because neither of us had ever even heard his name, not once. I, I think I'm right about that, right, Jude? Right. I never heard of him. Never. So... You know, we follow stuff like this, and if we hear you know, if a writer wins it that we've never heard of, we're kind of immediately a little bit more intrigued. And, you know, I was looking at – I was trying to learn a little bit about him, and I came across, which is, you know, what is – I was later to find out his first novel, kind of his breakthrough novel, which is a novel – a short novel called Paradise. 
And it's been described as a coming of age story that illuminates the harshness and beauty of Africa on the brink of colonization. So, you know, I just, I just looked at it. I thought it sounded really interesting. It's a slice of life from a, from a part of the world that we know nothing about written by a writer who has recently sort of burst onto the international scene. I mean, I think he was known. I, I think he's lived in England for a number of years. I saw an interview with him recently, speaks perfect English, you know, but he wrote, he wrote this uh, short novel about a, a boy who was sold because of a debt. He's sold to another family and it's kind of a coming in it, coming of age story uh, set in, you know, pre-colonial urban East Africa. And I just thought, that's got to be really interesting. <laughs> you know? So uh, I just, I just, you know, it's, it's very much my gut with us at this point. So I, I, that was my first choice that I gave to you was that book. And you want me to just briefly touch on the second one? Yeah, I think let's, uh, let's have you hit both and then I'll quickly explain the way they hit me and then we'll go the other way. Okay. That sounds good. So like I do with my reading, I like to, when I'm giving books to Jude, I like to kind of mix it up either by genre or a lot of times, you know, we tend to gravitate towards two, maybe three, you know, selections for each. And so with me, it's very often, I think you would agree with this, Jude, very often I'll go one, one fiction, one nonfiction, which reflects, I guess reflects a little bit more the way I read, but I know Jude's interests are, are vast. And so there's a book, a nonfiction book that I've been looking at for years for the last like five years in this context of possibly giving it to you but just for myself because that's one of the sort of bylaws of our exchange is that if it's a book that you can barely part with then it might be a good choice to give to the other guy <laughs> you right, know yeah <laughs> so this falls squarely under that category and i really don't know anything about this story at all but i just th thought it sounded absolutely fascinating it's a book called the black count Glory, Revolution, Betrayal, and the Real Count of Monte Cristo, written by a guy, a writer named Tom Rice or Reese. And it's apparently it's a, a true story of, about the father of the famous French novelist Alexandre Dumas. His father, you know, I guess his father's story hasn't really been told before this book. This book won the Pulitzer Prize, by the way. So it's, you know, it was well received. It was uh, back in 2013. And I guess, you know, Dumas is famous for writing novels about sort of like swashbuckling adventure stories like The Count of Monte Cristo, The Three Musketeers, etc. But what I certainly didn't know, and I think a lot of people didn't know, is the story that this book tells, which is that a lot of his novels were based on the real life exploits of his father. And his father, fascinatingly enough, was, first of all, he was uh, the son of a black slave. Um, from Haiti. And so that's a really fascinating point about his background and, you know, the lineage of Alexandre Dumas. And he basically became like a pirate. Um, and he had many adventures on the high seas. And apparently, you know, uh, you know, truth is stranger than fiction, you know. So this book kind of recounts the story of his, of his father, of the father of Alexandre Dumas, his life, Dumas, and um, kind of uh, about the, the relationship between the father and the son and how, you know, his life and his sort of influence lingered on in, in, in the life and the work of Alexander Dumas. So even though Dumas is not a writer, I think either of us have dipped into that extensively. 
most people know the bare bones of his stories. And I, this is a fascinating mix of uh, elements that I thought, you know, would be far different than what you would normally read. So that was the thing behind giving you the black count. Well, I mean, just really quick. So I want to take them in reverse, John, with Black Count. So I, when I got these two books, this is the way I reacted to them. Uh, Black Count was, if you remember, um, either the last episode, or a couple episodes ago, we were talking about a book I was reading um, about Ronald McNair, one of the astronauts, uh, happens to also be a black man, one of yeah. the astronauts who died in the Challenger. And then that inspired me to write some fiction. And I was sort of talking about that in the podcast. And you said, wow, that just sounds like an amazing kind of untold story, you know, about <clears throat> Ronald McNair and his life. That's the way this hit me when I opened up the Black Count. I was fascinated by just the title alone and the, co the cover image. Uh, Black <laughs> Count is just wild. I had never heard of the book, which is also really exciting, you know, because I follow things. And, you know, sometimes I think I know what books have won what awards. Never heard of this one. And um, I also have to say, um, it's it sort of, I, I got like a, a really exciting and uh, vibe from it immediately. And it's like a nice hefty book. It, it looked really interesting and meticulously researched. And the other thing I thought of when I opened it, I was just excited to see something I had just never heard of. And, you know, part of the fun of the exchange is just getting something. You're, you're facing like the left side of the plate and then the pitch comes in high and on the right, you know, and yeah. uh and uh, so that was part of it. But also one of my favorite books from this last year, we talked about it in the, the very last episode that we did, John, which was episode 42, by the way, for those taking notes. Um, one, of the, one of the best books of the year was that book I read, nonfiction book about Edgar Allan Poe. And one of the things I really liked about it was that it was kind of literary biography, kind of history. There was some like interesting ideas in there. And this sort of strikes me as a very similar book. You know, and I just devoured that book on Edgar Allan Poe. So I was really excited about Black Count and I'd never heard of it. And I, you know, I and the other thing is I have sort of a mild interest in sort of older um, famous novels that I haven't really. That's a corner of reading I haven't gotten into as much as I wanted to. Stuff like The Count of Monte Cristo or like Ivanhoe, Rob Roy, stuff like that, you know, Yeah. Um, and that's kind of in there too, you know? So I was really excited about that book and it really took me by surprise. And as far as um, Abdul Razak Gurna and the novel Paradise, you know, we follow the prize. I'm, I'm particularly nerd about the Nobel Prize. I always find it interesting to read books by Nobel Prize winners. You mentioned that we uh, like it when it's somebody we've never heard of, like literally never heard of. All those kind of boxes were checked. But then, you know, just... Again, it just speaks that whole larger thing that we're looking for when we read that's sort of collective to both of us about kind of, you know, we call it empathy or just walking a mile in another person's shoes. And this is a a novel by a, an obviously renowned and, and uh, you know, accomplished artist set in, you know, pre-colonization East Africa. And I just I don't have a clue what that's like. So I, I'm very interested in that. And I'm always hungry to read um, a Nobel Prize winner, particularly the ones I haven't discovered. So I was really excited about both of them. That, that, those were my reactions. You know, and like like I shared it earlier in the show, it's like it, what another part of this whole tradition that's a lot of fun is to, you know, it, it, with the way we read, you might you might not get to some of these books for a couple of years. 
like I, I was talking about right. SPQR. Um, that was a book you gave me back in 2018, just getting to it now. But the payoff, like when you, when hopefully, you, you know, when, when one of us reads the yep. other's pick and it's just like, man, I, I'm, I mean, to sum it up, it, the, the reaction is something like, I'm so glad I read this. You know, my life is richer from having read this. That, that's yeah. a real, there's, there's just a, look, we're nerds on this show. You can chuckle if you want, but there's a real satisfaction in knowing that. And I think most readers would agree with this. You know, knowing that you recommend or give a book to somebody and it, and it made a mark on them somehow or it resonated with them. And that's, that's, that's fun too. That's part of this whole tradition. And so it, it's kind of neat that it has reverberations across maybe even a couple of years. So, yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I'm excited for you to read those whenever you get around to them and hopefully, hopefully uh, they'll achieve that goal that I just, I'm going to, if you yeah. don't mind, I'm going to move on to, well, I guess I kick it over to you, right? And you tell me about the two books that you gave to me as part of these. That's two. right. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll do it quickly. So I had two books that I sent John this Christmas. The first one was a, a uh, fairly slender volume of short stories called Perchance to Dream, stolen from William Shakespeare there. It was written by somebody named Charles Beaumont. Now, Charles Beaumont, I may have heard his name before, but I definitely am not familiar with his writing. Um, but he was, uh, I, I believe he was deceased now. I think he was writing in like the 50s and 60s, maybe the 70s. He was best known for being one of the head writers of the TV show, The Twilight Zone. and he had, you know, has written many, many stories that are all over the map, but the, the central theme is kind of like weirdness, you know. So this was a guy that wrote like vampire stories, horror stories, alien stories, science fiction stories, just flat out weird stories. Um, and Penguin Classics put together a new version of selected stories of his that just looked like a hell of a lot of fun called For Chance to Dream. It came out in the, within the last few years. And what tipped my attention to it was John and I are huge fans, as we've said many times on the show, of the great Mexican filmmaker, uh, fantasy and horror filmmaker named Guillermo del Toro, whose most re recent film was called Nightmare Alley, which I saw not too long ago, but I don't think John's had the time to see it. Anyway, he no. was doing press around that. Somebody said, can you give me some, some of your top your favorite most inspirational books for telling weird stories and this book was on that list and when i saw the description i thought you know i sort of rang my cash register and i said you know that's going in the bucket for the for the exchange and i just thought that that would be a really fascinating and very fun read for john so that's book number one and then the second one was really a out of left field for me i was thinking about john as kind of a non-fiction reader in particular I know he likes to literally go to all corners of the globe and of, of this planet. Um, I know he's not afraid of environmental themes and science, but uh, this was kind of a combination of the things. I happen to notice that one of the really great publishers in America is called the Library of America. And I, it's tied in with the Library of Congress, I believe. And their, their sort of function is to preserve the work of America's most celebrated writers, basically. And they put out these really handsome hardcover editions of the, you know, the best American writers. And they were putting out a brand new book called The Sea Trilogy, which was written by someone named Rachel Carson, uh, a scientist, apparently. The only thing I know about Rachel Carson is that she's most famous for writing a book called 
silent the silent spring or silent spring and i i'm not is that a book about menopause <laughs> i'm not i can I, I, maybe i'm mixing it up with something else so i apologize yeah, I, I think you are mixing it up with with something else but no it's a book about it, it's a very very early uh book about environmental destruction but but particularly around the use of pesticides so okay that's, yeah well that's what someone's spring is about well unedited folks that's my second major error of the of the episode but like i said we've been off for 30 days anyway she's most famous for the book silent spring i've sort of vaguely heard about that obviously i didn't really know what it was about but earlier in her career she had written three nonfiction works specifically about life in the ocean and these were being gathered for the first time in this very handsome hardcover called the sea trilogy now i wish i could remember the names of the books i want to say one of them was called the sea below but I'm not sure. But I think one of them has to do with like coastal life, like life on the edge of the sea. And then another is about, you know, the life in the sea itself. And then I'm not sure about the third one, but I, they, the volume was really attractive to me. And the whole idea of having a trilogy of books that were written and sort of foundational many years ago about the ocean, which affects every person on this planet. I thought that was interesting for John and I took the plunge and I didn't know how it was going to go over, but he's going to tell you right now. Yeah, by the way, playing that book in the book called The Silent Passage, which was by a woman named Gail Sheehy, which was about that. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Haven't read that one, folks. And I, I doubt we're going to get to an uh, <laughs> in-depth discussion of that one on this on this show. But, I mean, to react, yeah, to react to these picks, I mean. First of all, I'll take the, the Charles Beaumont. And again, it's it's something that you mentioned before. I had never heard of the writer or the book. Obviously, I've heard of The Twilight Zone. And I think some of its most famous episodes were, were penned, or at least based on some of his stories, such as, uh, what is it? I think it's called Terror at 30,000 Feet or, or something like that. I might not have the number exactly right. But uh, that's a very famous Twilight Zone episode uh, that stars William Shatner, who writes an afterword to this volume of story? Right. <laughs> oh, you know, what else do you need? You know, it's a story of a, a collection of like fantasy and science fiction and sort of horror tales with an afterword by William Shatner. And by the way, a foreword by Ray Bradbury, which should tell you something right there, since Ray Bradbury is one of the greatest American writers of, you know, I, I guess I hate to use in terms like this, but what you might call genre fiction or science fiction or whatever. Um, but you mentioned, you, you use the word fun. I mean, this, this book, this book, you also mentioned cover images. Sometimes you just open a book and the cover just the way this cover of this book has this, this really, you know, bright colored sort of garish, you know, <laughs> collage of, of artwork that features, you know, a, a hand holding a pistol, of course, in classic noir fashion. Uh, it's got a winged demon on it. It has some kind of evil gnome kind of creature that looks like a Jawa that had somehow gone horribly wrong. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> I mean, are you getting the picture here, folks? What kind of book this is? You got like a, a large giant that's two headed that has these sort of pincer like claws. You know, these are all this kind of. <laughs> we you may not mean, make it out of that book alive. <laughs> <laughs> you know this dude. I mean, 
you know, grabbed onto that image and I said, this should be the new logo for our show right here because it's a <laughs> giant, you know, um, freak of nature. I mean, it's perfect. But uh, yeah, I mean, it just looks like it's going to be a blast. And, you know, I've read a couple volumes of short stories that sort of feel like this before from different writers. I mean, you talked about an excellent selection of horror fiction put out by the same press, by the way. Uh, earlier in the show, one of our early episodes by Thomas Ligotti. I mean, this this seems like it's kind of in that vein. And I, it's the kind of book that, and we often in, in our read, we'll talk about, you know, the way we read and kind of some of the purpose behind it. And sometimes you're just looking for something fun, something that just, you know, kind of blow the doors off your imagination. That's exactly what this book looks like. So, you know, I'm really... Uh, excited to kind of dive into that one and then the second book by Rachel Carson which is a much it's a big book it's a thick book as you said it's a trilogy um a hardcover beautifully bound hardcover trilogy and uh again you know I'd heard of Rachel Carson but the only book that I knew of knew her by was what just about everybody would know her by which is we've already mentioned which is Silent Spring I didn't really know much about her background at all. And I had no idea that she had written anything about, you know, the sea or, or the earth's oceans, let alone a trilogy of books. You know, so this is like, it really is what you would call like a discovery because, you know, when I opened this sucker, it was like, I didn't even, I didn't even know these three books existed and then started reading about them. And you're right. You know, I, I actually don't want to say too much because, it's it's cool. This is going to connect to something we're going to talk about in a little bit. So I want, I'm going to say more then. But um, you know, in terms of uh, natural world, but uh, say this is really right up my alley. Especially, I would say in the last you know several years of my life. So that this is a trilogy of books all about you know the world's oceans, and I, it just looks really fascinating. By the way, the the three books are called Under the Sea Wind. The sea around us and the edge of the sea. So it's just it's just yeah, sort of like cool. diving into a whole uh, new writer and a new kind of uh, I don't know uh, undiscovered you know back road that I haven't been down yet in terms of my reading and I'm I'm really looking forward to diving into it. So I, I thought it was a fantastic choice. So there you go. Yeah, and we're going to take a break here in a second, John. Uh, there's just two other things I wanted to say about that. I did feel like, you know, John, as you know, there's such a gut element to the book exchange. Sometimes, you know, you're three quarters of the way there and the last quarter is just gut alone. And I just felt something kind of cool about this C trilogy. Although I do think, and this happens, you know, I do think it runs a risk. It could be three straight books about the C that are really, really boring. You know, it definitely could be that. It doesn't feel like that to me. But, you know, you don't know, kind of, you have to just take a leap of faith with some of these choices. And the other thing I was going to say is it's interesting. I wish I could remember the title, but one or two years ago, one of my sort of right at, right there at the end selections for birthday or Christmas that then I didn't make it was a single volume history of the oceans. It was like 800 or 900 pages that somebody wow. had put out recently. I wish I could remember the name of it, but it was like, Somebody said, you know, this is a history that took on a history of the oceans, you know, across like across time. And I was like, that's friggin nuts. 
you know, and I remember really wanting to choose that. I didn't choose it for one reason or another, but then this book came along, which kind of scratches some of that itch. But anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, anyway, that's just kind of a, a window into how the, the book exchange works, the process that we have that helped lead us to this podcast, I guess. So right now, John, um, we're going to take a quick technical break, listen to a little more music. And then when we come back, um, I'm going to set up the second topic, which is the reading resolutions. I, I think I have a way that we can kind of run through this fairly quickly. And then uh, we'll have time left over to discuss the films we wanted to talk about. So let's take a quick break and we will be back. Yeah, I agree. I think we need to set, just knowing us and the way we talk, especially about movies related to books, I think we might want to leave a little extra time <laughs> for the for the movie reviews that we're going to attempt here. But uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to both discussions. So let's do it. Okay, we'll take a break. Be right back. This is music from Young Wolf. <clears throat> Okay, we are back, and I want to apologize again to uh, um, Rachel Carson for confusing her book Silent Spring with a book about menopause. Sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, John, topic number two is called Reading Resolutions. I'm going to set up a little bit here in a minute, but the way I want to handle it sort of just logistically is I'm going to start it off. I'm just to switch it up. I'm going to start it off myself this time. What what I want to do is I'm going to give you my full list quickly of my resolutions and I can just explain what they are really quick. Toss it over to you. You react to them a little bit and then give me your full list. If you have a list or your, you know, cover your um, resolutions, however you want to do it. And then I'll react to them. I think rather than going back and forth, I think that'll make it a little bit quicker if that works for you. Yeah, it does. I, I don't really I have one sort of resolution for this year that I came up with, but I was going to talk about, um, you know, a couple resolutions that I set for myself kind of on a more annual basis. So it's, it works that way. It's just a little bit, a little bit of a different approach, which I think makes it more interesting. Yeah, no, I think that works. Uh, I'll say it this way. I'll cover, you know, my take on reading resolutions and then you cover your take and we'll react to them real quick. Um, Perfect. but I, I do want to say just by way of introduction, this is something, again, I, I said it in the beginning, I have never at any point in my life that I can remember. I mean, that's part of our kind of MO set any sort of parameters or goals around my reading for the year. And so when John first brought this up and it was this the one that was suggested to you by somebody else. No, that was a previous segment. One of our listeners who knows about that tradition was said, maybe sometime you could sort of, you know, talk about it on air a little bit. Okay. Gotcha. Anyway, I've never done that before at all in any way. And when John first brought it up, you know, maybe we could do one about New Year's resolutions or something, which makes total sense. I was like, well, there's there's no there there, you know. (laughs) But when I thought about it, I thought, well, this would be an interesting way to maybe set some some goals for myself, which and I handled it that way. I have a list of four things I I decided to try this year with the understanding of, you know, I'm not going to hold myself to it you know, and with any firm way, but I'm going to, I thought about some things I wanted to try to do reading wise this year. And I'm going to share them with you now. 
I uh, love I, just really quick. I love it. Uh, first of all, that you know, this is encouraged you to try something a little different. And uh, the second point, really quickly, is that you know, and there's no way to get a response to this, but it's just you know, it, hypothetically, it'd be interesting to know. I think some some readers do kind of set goals for themselves and say, you know, I'd like to learn more about this, or I want to try to read in this direction, or maybe not at the beginning of the year, but you know there's reading with a purpose or with a plan. And then there's just reading whatever strikes you as the next good read. So I think they're both, you know, obviously legitimate ways to go with your reading, but it's interesting to, to think about what that might mean if you wanted to set some goals for your own reading. Yeah. And that's the way I took it. So I have four goals and the first one I've already done in a way, but I have to sort of stick to it. My first thought was never done this before. I usually have a sense of what, we talk about it on every episode, what I'm going to read next. I said to myself, well, I'm not going to do this for the whole year, but I'm going to sit down. I'm going to lay out the first 12 books I want to read this year. So wow. I looked at what I had and I thought about books that I, that I wanted to read and you know how I can make it a good variety. And I jotted down 12 titles and I'm, I'm not, you know, one of the things I do is if I hear about a book I'm really interested in and I can find it at the library and it's, it's there. I'll get it and read it. So I wouldn't, you know, not allow myself to do that. But I now have this list of 12, the first 12 books I'm going to read for the year. And, um, and I'm going to try to go through them and see how, see how that goes, you know, just kind of tick them off. So that's number one. And my second resolution this year is there's three big books. So I, so I took a look at some of my shelves, John, just trying to go through some of this. There's three big books that I've been meaning to read for probably four or five years and I keep not reading them. <laughs> so I wrote them down. Uh, well, I actually wrote down four of them, but I, my goal is to read three of these big books that I've been putting off. One of them I've only had for about a year or so, but the rest have been sitting around for a while. And the books are as follows. The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich by William Shirer. Middle March, George Eliot, which we talked about a lot. Uh, the fifth book in a game of Thrones called a dance with dragons. I've actually been putting that off for three years. I really want to read that book. And the fourth book is one I got from you for our 50th birthday. If you remember, it's called new Grub street. And um, I don't even remember. I didn't even write down the name of the author. I have no idea who the author of that is. Do you know who wrote new Grub street? I do because I have a copy on my shelf as well. Uh, George Gissing. Thank you for that. Yeah. So, that's my second resolution. I'm going to read three out of the four big books I've been putting off. <laughs> That's going to take a lot of my reading for the year right there, especially the rise and fall of the Third Reich. Um, resolution number three. <clears throat> As you know, and we don't have to discuss it, I've been working recently on the short stories. And I, I find that craft very difficult, but it's also very rewarding to write them. And so I thought, and many times I've undertaken sort of a mini study on the short story, but I realized I have at least uh, four or five volumes of collected, collected stories from very uh, monumental short fiction writers on my shelf. So I decided I'm going to read at least two of these collected works. And the writers are William Trevor. Um, some of them I've read already. William Trevor, I have not read. Gabriel Garcia Marquez, I have his collected stories. I've read them once. I have a huge volume by Vladimir Nabokov. Never read it. Got it from you. 
<laughs> it's always worth rereading Flannery O'Connor. So I, her collected stories, I've only read them once. There's a famed short story writer, but not as famous as the others, named Peter Taylor, who was from kind of the middle of the 20th century. Uh, a renowned short story writer. I have his collected stories, which I got from you. Dylan Thomas, famous for poetry. His collected stories are on my shelf. And then I have the collected fiction of Jorge Luis Borges, who we've talked about. I've read that once. Very challenging. But that would be worth going back and reading again. So my third resolution is to read at least two of those collected short story works. And the last one, and then I'll kick it over to you for reactions, is I love biographies, and I particularly love literary biographies, but I usually don't read a whole lot. Um, if I get one in per year, I'm lucky. And, and I think you generally read a little more than I do. So I want to read at least three um, biographies in the coming year, and I tend to want to read literary biographies, although not all of these on the list are literary biographies. So the candidates are, I have two biographies of Charles Dickens, and I, I'll just may as well announce here, next year's Dickens Fest 21 is going to be one of those biographies. So it's not actually going to be a book by Charles Dickens. It's going to be a book about Charles Dickens. Uh, I also have the third volume of the magisterial three-volume biography of Graham Greene, written by Norman Sherry. I have a book called Lamy of Santa Fe, which is uh, a biography of the archbishop in New Mexico, uh, upon which the great novel Death Comes for the Earth for the Archbishop is based, book written by Willa Cather. You also gave me that biography. I have a literary biography of V.S. Pritchett, a very famous short fiction writer from the UK. And lastly, there's a book called All God's Dangers. And that's a biography of kind of a uh, either a, a slave or a descendant of slaves of a sort of, um, what's the word I want? Um, what's the word for when you can't read, John? I'm blanking. Illiterate. Uh, illiterate. Illiterate black man who grew up either in slavery or as a descendant of slaves that came out a number of years ago that you also gave me. So those are my resolutions. I know I threw a lot at you. You don't have to react to everything. What do you think? And then just roll right into yours. Well, for, <laughs> first of all, <laughs> I think uh, you really took this assignment to heart and you set some very ambitious goals for yourself. <laughs> which I, I really like, both in terms of like quality and length. Like you're never going to get to all those books, but you know that. Um, but so I salute that effort. That's I think that's great. I think it's great that it gave you a chance to just think about it. And I, I'm with you. Like I only have kind of one you know, sort of new resolution that I was going to set for myself this year. But, you know, I'm not going to. It's not like we're going to come back around to the end of the year and grade each other's efforts and, you know, you get a C plus. Or <laughs> yeah, it's not like that at all. It's more about, for me anyway, this discussion is more about, you know, hey, it's sort of like part of the conversation we have with readers everywhere. Hey, do you ever set goals for yourself? Do you ever read with a purpose in mind? Or is it always just, like I said before, just kind of spontaneous? And, you know, and that, that may, that may, harken back a little bit to you know ways we approach reading as readers you know we've talked about this a lot on the show but like for me 
you know, I, I read for entertainment like anyone else, but I also read for self-education, which is nothing new. A lot of people do that, whether they realize they're doing it or not. You know, it's not, I don't want that to sound, sound highfalutin at all. But I do read with an overarching purpose that I'm trying to, uh, you know, enrich my knowledge, my sense of the world, trying to, you know, live a better life, frankly. And um, my reading sort of connects to that in a lot of ways, not, not, not every book, you know, if, I, if we're reading a crime novel by Derek Raymond, I'm not trying to improve my character through, through reading that. Although it may it get you thinking about, you know, uh, the nature of evil, for example, or whatever. So that for me, is kind of an overarching, I guess I would say purpose or goal with, with, with my own reading. And, you know, the choices I make are reflective of that to some degree, even if it's sort of subconscious. Um, so, so I John, guess, if you're, re if you're reading like the Tommy knockers, you know, that's not necessarily your, uh, <laughs> your, uh, your goal for your year, you know? <laughs> no, but it's, it's, you know, sometimes you just want to, the same reason I might watch a crime show on Netflix, like Ozark or something, you know, it's mm -hmm. just, you, you kind of want to, in a way you sort of want to turn your brain off and just be entertained. And yet at the same time, I'm hopeful that it's smart enough and good enough to get me thinking about things. And, you know, some Stephen King books are like that and many are not, you know, but, uh, right. and that's fine, you know. Um, but anyway, so to sort of segue into my own kind of resolutions for the year, you know, I just mentioned that there's a couple, I don't know if what I would call them sort of principles, guiding principles or parameters that I always put on myself every year. Um, and I'm aware of it, but I, you know, I don't, I don't consciously say, okay, I, I got to do this this year. It's just part of my sort of MO. And so I just mentioned, you know, try to, I want to read, you know, books that are going to kind of enhance my knowledge of the world and kind of stretch my brain out a little bit. I also want to read in a way that stretches my, you know, moral sensibilities and my, uh, my spiritual life a little bit, you know, so a lot of my reading, you know, adheres to that in one way or another. For example, um, you know, I always, I'm always reading something of a spiritual nature, but no matter what I'm reading otherwise. And that's just to sort of try to, you know, try to feed my soul a little bit. So that's, that to me is a sort of an annual resolution that I'll continue, of course, this year. It's a little bit like Dickens Fest for you. It's just kind of a, I'm going to be doing it, you know, until I can't read anymore. And uh, hopefully, so that's, that's one. Um, I, you know, I've talked about self-education. The other thing that's important for me, and I've mentioned it on the show, and you know this very well, and I'll continue to do this again for as long as I can read, is I, I want to swing the pendulum between fiction and nonfiction. There's something about that dynamic that I really enjoy. You know, dive into a fictional world, sort of feed that side of my imaginative brain, and then learn about something that I don't know, or then just kind of think more deeply about a topic that I'm interested in, in a nonfiction way. So, I, you know, I do that all the time. It's not like all of this. It's not set in stone. It's not like, okay, I, I read a fiction book la last week, so I have to read a nonfiction book this week. It's not like that. Sometimes you get on certain runs, you know, you want to read a trilogy, you want to read in a certain genre, whatever. Or we're reading to prepare for one of these shows. But I'm always going to vacillate between the fiction and the nonfiction. There's something about there's a kind of a dual hemisphere 
aspect to my reading brain. I don't know why, but I just really like that, that back and forth. And I'm, I'm, I don't think that's ever going to change for me mm-hmm. now. And then just to sort of wrap this up, you know, but when I was thinking about 2022 and I don't know why this kept popping into my head, but it did. Um, and it's very interesting because it connects very much to one of the books you gave me for the Christmas exchange. So I, I was thinking about this and I think like in the last five years in particular, I really don't know why it may have, may have something to do with just aging, getting older, being more reflective. I don't know, but I found myself reading more about the natural world. And by that, I mean, you know, it could be trees, it could be, you know, oceans, it could be a certain species of animal. It could also be space, you know, or the limits of space or whatever, anything about, and it it also very much for me, uh, uh, leads me towards poetry and some of the great poets. So I was thinking about that. And I think, I think it is connected to kind of where I am in life. And I've just found a lot of, I guess I would put it this way. I found a lot of fodder for reflection uh, in reading about the natural world, both in terms of like, you know, our relationship to it, but also, and this is going to sound sort of highfalutin, but I don't know how else to say it, but also just, you know, I feel that there's wisdom to be gained. The more we look at the natural world and learn about it, there's wisdom to be gained there that, that I feel somewhere you know, inside. I'm not saying I apply it, but I've, I think that's drawn me to reading more about the natural world in, in the last few years. And, you know, I can, I could list a number of examples of books that, you know, they talked about the, the book I read called the moth snowstorm last year, which connected the natural world to joy and how that might actually impact, you know, human policy about the environment, which I thought was really interesting. Or, you know, I read a book about the octopus and what a fascinating species that is. And, you know, a couple of years ago, we, or we talked on the show about um, a book called The Hidden Life of Trees. That book really resonated with me I, in ways that I sort of surprised me, you know, frankly. So I'm going to do that is the one thing I, I'm going to try to do a little bit more of this year is just make sure that I continue the, that sort of education and that kind of fascination with reading about the natural world. And that's why your choice of Rachel Carson, you know, may actually may slot right in there this year, at least one of the three in the trilogy. But, you know, we talked earlier in the show, it's, it's kind of a gut thing sometimes. And my gut, you know, my instincts are kind of pointing me in that direction. And and, and I'm going to try to follow that in 2022. So those are my thoughts on, on how I want to spend my year in reading. And, um, it would be interesting to hear from any of our listeners, you know, whether they have any ideas about how they'd like to spend the year, their year in reading, but either way, maybe this will get you to, you know, think about that in a way that you haven't before. Ooh, great call to action there, John, as they say in business, (laughs) as they say in marketing. (laughs) Yeah, actually. uh, Yeah. Great, great reflections and resolutions, John. Yeah. I think, um, you know, I, we weren't necessarily thinking about this or talking about it even, but I, I definitely noticed that for your reading in particular, like you were gravitating more towards the natural world, really both fiction and nonfiction. And that did inform my choice of the Rachel Carson trilogy. But um, 
you know, again, like for you, this exercise has helped you to take a step back and maybe notice that. I think you probably noticed it all along, as you were saying, but like just kind of observe the pattern from the last few years. And I don't think, you know, I mean, I'm a fellow dork, but I don't think anything you were saying was too highfalutin or grandiose. I think that's just kind of, you know, perhaps where we are in life, but also just as you continue to read and educate yourself, um, you sort of gain these perspectives on, you know, sort of who we are and where we are, you know, and what we're doing and what we're doing to that environment. And furthermore, I like that you brought in, because one thing that I admire about your reading life that I really don't have as much, I do do spiritual reading, but not in with the discipline is the correct word with which you do it. Um, because I know you've always said that you go to John's house and you see his reading station, there'll be whatever book he's reading and there'll be two or three volumes of spiritual writing. And it's the same thing with his wife. And uh, I, I don't have that. And I'm not going to pretend like, you know, I'm, I'm going to start doing it tomorrow, but, and that's John's journey. And it's interesting that you brought it up because that it is a really legitimate part of your reading life and makes sense that it would remain one of your goals, but also, those things i can say this is your brother you don't say this yourself but that feeding of your intellect and your spirit you know has a way of coming out in all the discussion that you engage in about books it does it does pay off but i i like that i like that you brought it up i kind of admire it so i'll sort of leave it there with my thoughts on your thoughts yeah well thanks <coughs> thanks for that and um I got to be careful. I really don't want to sound like I'm trying to be holier than thou with that. I'm really, you know, and I'm not trying to be falsely humble either when I say that I think this is true of most of us. You know, most of that reading, whether it be spiritual or natural or whatever, I'm trying to figure out how to how to live life, <laughs> really, you know, yeah. and, yeah, and point. Uh, yeah. you know, it's the same reason, you know, that Dante's, you know, epic poem begins with a he makes a point to say that, you know, there was a man walking through the woods in the middle of his life and he was sort of wandering a little bit lost. And I, I'm not saying I'm, I'm not over dramatizing, saying I'm lost in the woods, but I'm trying to figure out how to how to lead a fruitful life. And that's all all there is to it, really. And um, I sense that there may be something for me helpful, uh, both on the spiritual side and reading more about the natural world, but that's all I know. But, you know, but that's why we read is to explore. And anyway, I, the more you talk, the more pretentious it sounds. So maybe we should. <laughs> well, but anyway, we, will, we will, we will move on, but uh, I'm going to give you 4,237 extra points for the very well employed Dante reference. Um, that worked. Oh. But, uh, but yeah, no, no, I think what you're saying is, and, and this is very legitimate, you know, those reading goals that you have and, and my reading goals too, they're not more than they are, but they're not less than they are either. You know, like what yeah, you're saying things. is you're, yeah, you're like, you're trying to live a better life. You know, it's not more grandiose than that, but let's not say, call it less than that. You know, that is what yeah. you're trying to do. And so anyway, I commend you for the, uh, for the, idea to discuss the resolutions because it got us into a little corner of the reading reading i guess of the topic of reading that we haven't gone into before so that's cool and uh so let's get it we're going to take a quick music break again and then john um 
I actually do have a hard stop today. Again, as they say in business, but we probably got about half an hour, 25 minutes, which I think is probably going to be good. Um, as long as you have it, which I think will probably be a good limitation on our next discussion, which is about two films. Yeah, it's going to be challenging because they're both really, really interesting uh, material for discussion, but we'll give it our best shot. Yep. Yeah, we'll just do the best we can. Uh, so let's take a listen to some more music and we will be back in two shakes. Well, I, I can't believe I actually said two shakes, but, um, you know, you, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> That's the best moment of this whole show. Oh, man. <laughs> this is live, folks. This is live. Uh, <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> Meant no offense. Okay, so here's what we're going to talk. John and I are, are really into this because we do a lot of nerdy talking about movies. And uh, John does an annual list of his favorite movies every year um, that, uh, you know, in which he does a great job articulating not only what his favorite favorite movies were, but why he likes them in kind of a short space. So but in this case, we there were two movies we both saw recently. We both had been discussing one of them. We were both equally absolutely fired up about as high as you could get fired up to see. Um and we're going to hit that one second. That's called The Tragedy of Macbeth, which was uh, written and directed by Joe Cohen, one half of the Cohen brothers for the screen. The other one, which we're going to talk about first, if, you, if you're game, John, is a literary adaptation of the epic poem called Sir Gawain, Gawain, however you say that, and The Green Knight. That was turned into a film at the end of last year that was directed by somebody named David Lowry, and it's based on that medieval poem, which I'm going to turn over to John in a second because I don't have any idea how old that poem is. I know it's an epic poem, an adventure tale, um, and we're going to get into it. But, John, I know to get the ball rolling on the discussion of the David Lowry's film called The Green Knight, which I just watched over the last couple of days. I know you went back and you read the epic poem. I have not read the poem. Can you give us your impressions of the poem really quickly and then lead into why I hope it's not saying too much to say this was John's number one film on his list for last year. That's right. So why don't you tell us a little about your experience of reading the epic poem? If you know the year that would help, I don't, I don't know. And then segue into your thoughts on the film and then I'll come back and respond to your thoughts the only other thing i want to say before i kick it over is that john saw the movie was really inspired by it it became his number one movie of the year i saw the trailer wasn't very interested then i saw john's list i thought maybe i'm missing something i went back and watched it but we have not really discussed both of our reactions to it so john i'll turn it over what about the original work and why is the film so effective for you yeah, I'm loving this discussion. This is going to be a lot of fun, kind of in, 
a fun tangent for us to go on here. But yeah, um, well, like you mentioned earlier about how your memory sucks. I'm your twin brother. My memory sucks. I, I certainly do not remember what year exactly the poem comes to us from. But I'm, you know, I'm going to, so I apologize for that. I think it's, you know, 1200s, 1300s, certainly, you know, firmly medieval. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, you know, written by an anonymous author. So the, the, the actual writer of this, of this epic poem has never really been discovered. Um, and it was the movie, I've had it on my shelf for a long time, but it was the movie, after seeing the movie and just finding it to be really interesting, I was just fat, you know, you just don't see films made from that kind of material these days, especially these days of like the MCU, Star Wars, the Disneyfication of everything. You certainly don't see a lot of time, a lot of movies being made based on anonymous epic poems written in the Middle Ages. So true. I, I really wanted to go. And it's not long. So I really wanted to go back and, and, and read it just to kind of see what they were drawing from. So I the found poem the, poem really, the poem is not long. Yeah, because no. the film is fairly long. The film is fairly long, but they take, yeah. a, you know, there's certainly liberties taken, which I actually appreciated in the movie, which I'll get to in a minute, but the poem, I find it was, a, it was, it was, I really enjoyed going back to it and reading it. I mean, there's something about, we've talked about this on the show before. I know epic poetry in particular is one area that, you know, if I'm, if we don't want to use the word intimidated, I think you're just not that interested in, or you find to be challenging, but I've, I've always found it to be kind of interesting. So. Um, yeah, whether, all the above. Yeah. Whether it's Homer or, or um, a book that I've, Champion with you a zillion times, Omeros by uh, Derek Walcott, the poet, or what have you. So, but the poem is really, you know, it's not that long to get through. It's kind of, it's, it's episodic, like the, you know, the basic structure is like the movie in that, you know, there's a knight who's, um, you know, the bare bones plot of the Green Knight is there. There is a knight uh, who is connected, who's the nephew of King Arthur. So it's an Arthurian sort of legend. And he's part of, you know, Arthur's inner circle. And he's uh, reveling with King Arthur and his knights um, on Christmas, Christmas Day. And their, their revels are interrupted by a sort of ghostly figure of a green knight who kind of just literally rides in on his horse. And he, and he challenges, he issues the challenge if, if one of your, which of your knights is, would be up for, you know, exchanging blows with me, one blow for another. I'll let them take their blow today. But the only caveat is they have to, you know, be willing to take the same blow in exactly one year from me. So, um, and this young nephew of King Arthur, because he's ambitious in the movie, actually, he's not a knight yet in the, in the, in the poem, I believe he is, but there's this sort of ambitious element. You know, he stands up, I'll be the one, even though you have all these other, you know, sort of knighted soldiers who, who don't, don't rise the occasion and um, you know, uh, logic and maybe wisdom would dictate you maybe make a little nick on the shoulder or something, but at, in his youthful ambition, he cleaves his entire head off the night, you know, this spectral night grabs his head, the head's still talking. And he says one year hence, and he rides out. And so the, both the poem and the movie, have sort of imaginative ways of describing, you know, the, the, the uh, passing of one year and they kind of go through that quickly. 
and then it's time for the knight to tour the, the 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 wannabe knight to sort of pay his debt and he goes on this sort of like trek throughout you know the wilderness of england uh in order to find a place called the green chapel which is where this knight supposedly resides but he has no idea where it is and along the way he meets a mysterious figure who lives in a castle uh with a wife who um ends up seducing him and it's all very sort of episodic and strange but this mysterious figure in this castle is like sure i know where the green chapel is so he directs into the green chapel and he has his confrontation with the, with the green knight uh one year hence and i'll kind of leave it there because interestingly enough well we, you know we can we should say that we're, we're going to talk about the ending probably so if you haven't seen the film you should probably cut off now and, and rejoin this discussion later but the way the ending is handled is different in the movie than it is in the, in the poem. So, but there is sort of a resolution in, in both cases and, you know, his debt is paid one way or another. So kind of leave it at there, at there in terms of the synopsis of what the green Knight is about. And did you want to say anything just to help me catch my breath or make a comment? Well, I mean, I guess I'll just pick up on what I had said earlier. Um, well, first of all, you're right. I mean, I'm just kind of, I have a little bit less interest in epic poetry and there's definitely an intimidation factor there because I have a few titles on my shelf that I haven't <laughs> haven't managed to crack into yet. Um, but I, I had also, I had seen the trailer for the film and I, I don't know where my head was at when I saw the trailer. So I went back and watched it again just before I watched it this time. But when I first saw the trailer, I thought it looked kind of boring and like a CGI kind of, movie you know not a very interesting take on epic work of literature but i would say like i was i was fairly wrong about that you know um because and you told me i was going to be wrong about it <laughs> you said whatever you think about it that it's going to be it's not going to be and i think you i think for the most part you were right about it uh, um so i wasn't familiar with the 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 poem or the tale at all but with the film, like when you start to watch the film and you can pick up on this, um, it was presented in such a way. I really liked kind of the very sort of dark sort of palette wise, but also tone wise quality of the film. And also there was just a, a really strong quotient of just mystery and, uh, and yeah. kind of like an unsettled feeling to the film from the jump, which I attribute to the filmmakers and the way they decided to handle the material, you know, and that lasted throughout. So like, and there's a lot of elements of the film that are really mysterious, but they were like made twice as mysterious by the way that they were presented and filmed and shot, etc. So maybe you can pick up from there, like, you know, about the movie specifically, you know, and you said something and you're right above it. Like, you know, what, what made this story? Cause it's like a kind of a cool, quest tale but there were other elements to the film that really made it stand out at least to you and to me also yeah exactly and i know we don't have a lot of time but I'm, i'll try to touch on it. so you you touched on it already i i thought i just thought it was a really interesting adaptation that i just didn't see coming i'd see i'd seen a couple of movies from lowry and i and i've always thought he's had a very interesting visual style as well as you know Again, in the few movies I've seen, 
he's willing to be sort of meditative on screen and he's, you know, take it, take his time, you know, sort of uh, not afraid to have a long take or, or show you something interesting visually and just kind of dwell on it for a minute or two, which I've, and I, I appreciate that kind of filmmaking, but I, I think he just, you know, he took the, the bones of the material, but he kind of let his imagination add to it. And he sort of took it in a number of interesting directions that I don't think any, anybody would have seen coming. Some of which are not at all really in the source material. Like there's a dynamic between the knight and his uh, sort of concubine in the beginning of the movie. And then later with the, with the wife of the, of the man who lives in this castle in the woods and interesting choice there played by the same actress, but there are some real dynamics between um, this man and a woman that kind of explore a little bit, you know, you know, masculinity in a way, like she sort of questions why he needs to do, go on this quest for honor. You know, his answer is, you know, it's, it's to, to, to make myself worthy to be a knight or for honor. And she kind of is like, well, what is the point though? You know, where's the value in that? And I thought there were some interesting aspects there. Um, and also just how episodic it is. It, it, the whole movie just feels like a dream, you know, and has these, has these certain passages that again, are not in the, not in the uh, original poem. Like, like when he meets, uh, I think it's Winifred and he kind of like uh, has this experience with her and he finds her head at the bottom of a lake and gives it back mm -hmm. to her. That's not in the, um, the medieval poem. They're just these oh, kind okay. of, and of course the like, you know, one of the things I really wanted to know is like, there's that really weird scene with the, with the walking giants. And, you know, I, I wondered where the hell did that come from? Was that in the poem? Well, it's not. And so <laughs> it's it just these strange episodes. And then, and then that scene again, where he, you, he finds himself bound in the woods and there's this, really interesting shot where it goes 360 degrees and he's under a tree and he's bound hand and foot and it goes around one long, slow arc and it comes back around and you see his bones there. Like he, like he died there. <laughs> and then it goes around again and he's, and he's back, you know, where he was before and it's never really explained, you know? So it just touches like that, that I found to be really cryptic, but also just really interesting choices that he made in both visually and in terms of, uh, what he did with the story that just gave it this odd, you know, dreamlike element that I, I just found really interesting, both visually and just kind of intellectually. So that's, that's really what I appreciated about it. Yeah. And there, and there's, yeah, there's, those are good points. There's a lot of similarities in a way between that and the movie we're going to discuss next, which will, I'm not quite ready to transition to, but we're going to in a minute, uh, the tragedy of Macbeth, because there was a lot of, stylistic choices and the way the, the, the material was presented visually that really contributed to the effect of the movie. But Absolutely. In, in the case of the green Knight, I thought it was, yeah, I thought there all those things you said. I, I noticed a lot of like really slow and kind of longish takes with the camera, you know, that kind of had a way of just like, you know, they, they're like awkward silences in conversation. You're like, is somebody going to do something, you know, and, and they were all yeah. over this movie. And um, and but not only that, there was just it was all that nerdy stuff. Like there were many scenes that were like really dark. I mean, literally dark. And they were so dark, you could barely even see what was happening, you know, or you could see like, you know, shadows moving around, 
you know, so like in in some instances through the movie, there's a lot of minimalist light, you know, in a, in a lot of scenes that gave it like this murky feeling, you know, and I, I thought, and I didn't know which parts of it were sort of imagine, ima- imagined and which part were in the original source material, but it all worked together as one kind of, your word, the word dream is really sort of apropos. And that's kind of what I didn't expect so much. I thought it would kind of be like more of a, a choppier and the more of an edited experience. And this wasn't like that at all. It was just really kind of languid and slow and like, dream like you know like or like the scene where he plunges down to get the woman's head which is fascinating to me that, that wasn't in the poem at all because you know no. it said saint it said saint winifred i think and uh t- yeah. the movie has a lot of like title cards in it you know which uh, by the way i'm kind of a sucker for i know it's just kind of like a gimmick but when but when movies put up like you know chapter two or something like that or like you know this movie has a lot of that stuff and that kind of sucks me. And that was in the power of the dog, you know, in other movies like yeah. <laughs> Quentin Tarantino does that a lot, etc. I'm kind of a sucker for that. You could argue yeah. that it's like a gimmick, but the well, scene even, where he put even, even the design of those uh, title cards was, was different in every one. And I thought that was really cool too. Yeah, it was really cool. It was visually interesting. Again, you don't see it every, t- everywhere. But even that scene where he plunges through the head is kind of like almost a metaphor for the whole movie in a way. It's like, you know, it's, it's like dark plunge through murky darkness and then there's like a skull at the bottom, <laughs> you know? And uh, I mean, I, you know, and the other thing I got to say, like um, just really quick and then we'll talk maybe for just a couple of minutes about the ending. But I, so the, the lead actor was this English actor of, um, you know, Southeast Asian descent. Anyway, I think he's English, but um, Dev Patel. So he was best known for his work in Danny Boyle's movie Slumdog Millionaire. But I I remember, and he's also he also played David Copperfield in the recent adaptation of David Copperfield. I remember him being, you know, kind of an interesting presence in Slumdog Millionaire. But I definitely wouldn't say that he carried that movie. This is an example, John, of where I thought an actor really kind of took several strides forward. You know, I thought I was very surprised by how good he was. And I thought he was just kind of a commanding. If he didn't work, the whole movie wouldn't work. And I thought he was excellent in the movie. I couldn't agree more. I, I thought that's one of the real strengths of the movie is his central performance. And he, I think he just kind of explodes on the screen. He's got a ton of charisma. He really he does. He really kind of carries this movie. And I, I liked him before. But I, I, you know, this is the movie that definitely like, you know, be, be really interesting to see what what he does next, because it just shows kind of what he can do. You know, there's a scene where he's I mean, and he runs the gamut. You know, he's there's a scene where he's like posing for a portrait and he's being all ridiculously like foppish and vain. And it's hilarious. But other times he's truly, you know, scared out of his mind. And uh, you really buy that he's in great peril, you know, or, or confusion. And I, yeah, I thought he was fantastic in it. Um, even, even to the point where, you know, when, when he does, when they sit, it's actually the opening image of the movie, but when they finally, when he finally sits on the throne with the crown and with the scepter, I mean, he looks regal. I mean, he, he really, he looks great there too. So I thought he was excellent. And I, I just want, I mean, there's a, there's a whole, we could go on and on, but, there's something really interesting in this movie, and I've, I've only seen it once. I'd have to unpack it more going on about time and just kind of the nature of time. You know, I mentioned already that kind of long, slow shot where it goes in a circle. 
and he's alive and then dead and then alive again. And also, you know, even down to the way I thought it was fantastically creative how they use that little puppet show to show basically the passing of a year with that turning wheel. I, I mean, yeah. that, that's the, the play. And this is what was really in the play. There's a, lo- a lengthy passage about basically the turning of the seasons and how one season, you know, spring turns to summer, turns to fall. It's very florid and descriptive. So he, he kind of makes the same point. The poet makes the same point that, you know, the wheel of time has turned one more revolution. But the way Lowry showed that, I mean, that's on him and the production team. And that's just a really interesting choice. And the movie's full of those choices. Definitely agree. Yeah, I really like that, too. That puppet show thing was really fascinating, you know, just visually and as a, as a device. Right. But, I've never um, seen anything like that before. So, I thought me neither. Yeah, and we do have to move on. It's also interesting that both of the movies end <laughs> end with a beheading. <laughs> so, yeah, true, do you want to say anything really quick about? Because um, it's not a spoiler for Shakespeare, that's for sure. You want to say anything really quick about sort of the final images of the Green Knight before we turn to the tragedy of Macbeth? Well, I'm trying to remember exactly what you're referring to. You might as well just refresh my memory. What specifically do you mean? Well, I don't know if it was the last image, but at the very end of the movie, it was a little confusing to me. Um, He's kind of, if you remember, he kind of has a resolution with the Green Knight, and then he makes his way back home, and then the movie starts to move very rapidly through time, speaking of time. And um, he becomes the king. Oh, right. Yep. And it, it goes through sort of much of his adult life. And he seems to end the movie. He loses his son in battle yep. and goes through. He marries somebody else other than his original muse, has a son, loses him in battle. And then he comes to this point of basically um, disrepute or kind of like uh, kind of like more of a um, ill reputed state while he's king. He seems to have lost the respect of his of his subjects. And then they're all gathered at the end and there's either a battle going on outside or, or something is rushing into the castle and you, you get the impression that like there's a hammering on the door. You get the impression that like the green knight is coming back, but you never actually see it. (laughs) And then at the very end of the movie, everyone kind of abandons him in the throne room. He's sitting there and you never really see the green knight come in or anybody come in, but then is he loses the, he pulls off the, Oh yeah. This is going into, he pulls off the like, um, what do you call it? The sash that his mother had made for him. Yeah. And then he loses his head. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. It just falls off as if it was severed. I can't believe I forgot that. Um, Yeah. That the whole ending is added on to the poem. The poem has a very different ending. The poem ends with, with him, um, you know, confronting the knight one year hence. And they kind of have this discussion and basically the knight lets him off the hook and says, you know, you've, you've fulfilled your obligation. You've come back and you were ready to receive this blow. And so therefore I will let you go and live your life. You know, that's the way the poem ends. So there's a lot tacked on sort of imaginatively by the screenwriters um, it, it, which is very, I mean, we don't have time to dig into why that might be, but it's very interesting. And I think, again, I think they're doing something with this whole idea about, um, 
you know, pledging yourself to something and then, you know, whether you have the guts to see it through to the end or not and whether there's, you know, uh, whether you're being true to that or whether you're just kind of like, there's something about posturing going on in this movie, like posing as this great hero or warrior or king. And, but maybe not really having the, the, uh, the inner strength to kind of, or the integrity to sort of see that through. And it, you know, I, I don't, I would have to unpack that more to really think that through, but that final image, it's almost like it's saying, well, you know, you, you were never really true to this vow and now, you know, it's coming back on you sort of thing. Yeah. 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 Well, it's interesting that, um, the ending of the poem and the ending of the film are so different. They took it kind of a different way, but it's again, that scene with the beheading at the end, uh, is visually arresting. I guess I, there's a spoiler there, but you know, <laughs> well, it does feel like he's sort of, and again, I go back to this idea that like maybe he was never really true to his vow and his heart because it is interesting that they show his life and it, it does not unfold. He doesn't have this heroic ending to his life or happy ending. He loses his son and eventually he loses his own life, you know? So there's definitely a bit of a recompense in the end that. Yeah. And he, and he, he's getting abandoned by people at the end of the movie, you know? Yeah. So anyway. Um, okay. Well, that's a green night and we have just enough time. We got like maybe 15 minutes or so within, you know, sort of our, one of our normal or slightly larger length episodes to discuss the other film, John, if you're game, which oh, yeah. is called the, the tragedy of Macbeth. Now we don't have to go through the catalog or the history of the Cohen brothers, Joel and Ethan Cohen, but this is the first movie that was made by Joel Cohen since Ethan Cohen decided that he didn't want to do movies anymore, at least for now. And Joel Cohen was encouraged by his wife, the actor Frances McDormand, to take on the, well, originally she had, I guess, uh, been asking him for years to do a stage version of Macbeth that she could act in. And he told her he wouldn't know what to do because he's not a stage director. But she kind of made him come around to, but he did, he was interested in possibly making a film version that looked kind of like a play and kept sort of the spirit of a theatrical production, but that was a film where he felt more comfortable, you know, operating as a writer, director, editor, etc. But he said that he knew that Ethan Cohen would not be interested in doing a Shakespeare film. So when Ethan decided that he wasn't going to be doing movies anymore, at least for now, Bill Cohen took on the tragedy of Macbeth solo with his wife and then they hired Denzel Washington to play Macbeth. So this movie has been on our radars for at least a year, if not longer, because they were making it uh, well over a year ago. And then they had to pause for the, for the global pandemic. And then they had to pick it up again. And now it's finally here came out in theaters. I was able to catch it in the theater. John couldn't see it in the theater, but um, he got, he got to see it through Apple TV. And so um, I'll, I'll take a pause, just kind of, I don't know where you want to come into commenting on the movie, John, you know, maybe talk a little bit about your familiarity with the story of Macbeth or previous film versions or, you know, but what were your ex expectations coming into the film? And then if you want, you can transition into your general impression of how well Joel Cohen did in the film. 
Well, I'm going to, okay. So I'm going to pick up on, you know, you brought, you talked about the Coen brothers and sort of their, their film career and how he got it kind of got to this project. One thing I didn't really expect, and that was a good summation of all that. One thing I didn't really expect was, but I quickly dawned on me, you know, watching, and we've both seen, I think it's safe to say we've both seen several adaptations of Macbeth. We know the basic story. I know I, I was fortunate to see one actually on stage on Broadway starring Patrick Stewart, which was an incredible experience. But, you know, I've, we've both seen Kurosawa's Throne of Blood, which is based on Macbeth. Um, I think we've both seen Roman Polanski's version, film version of Macbeth. So, and there are many others. So, but one thing that struck me, and I, you know, you can comment on this too, but like, as I'm watching a movie, I was like, it dawned on me. Well, of course, if the Coen brothers or one of the Coen brothers is going to do Shakespeare, it's got to be Macbeth. And it just struck me how much of a sort of Cohen story this is. You know, first of all, I mean, how many of their movies have been about basically crimes gone wrong, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, from Raising Arizona to um, uh, uh, No Country for Old Men to Fargo. Fargo to The Man Who Wasn't There. It's it runs like a red thread through almost every one of them. So they're. You know, just watching the, the play and kind of thinking about the Coen brothers and what they've done, it just seemed, in retrospect, such a perfect match. You've got a crime that's committed and goes wrong in, in, in ways that were unexpected and how that reverberates out in, 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 the, in the moral universe of these characters and how it kind of disorients them. There's that. There's obviously the violence and kind of shocking moments of violence. There's the moral murkiness of the entire story. I mean, if there's one theme that runs through Macbeth, it's just murk and mire and fog and not knowing, you know, it's, you know, at the very beginning, right? What is fair is foul and foul is fair. You know, everything's right. upside down. And that could describe like almost every Coen brother movie. You know, it's just the moral wow. universe is turned on its head. And then, of bubble, course, the bubble, 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 toil and trouble. <laughs> yeah. And and you know, how these crimes kind of revisit on us two and three and tenfold and kind of do something. And the, the other thing is the psychology of it, which this is Macbeth is famous for. You know, it's about, I was reading somewhere, you know, Macbeth is a character who's doomed before the play even begins. I mean, he's already kind of nuts and he's just following sort of the natural course. And he just, you know, and this idea of like, you know, crime committed and violence committed and how it what it does to the psyche of the characters is such familiar terrain for one of the Coen brothers. It just didn't, and all this kind of came to me as I was watching it. But and yet at the same time, it's new material completely for them. And you mentioned sort of the visual sense, and he makes a lot of fascinating choices. He and the the production team, in terms of, uh, you know making this movie almost it, it certainly feels like a hybrid between film and the stage and and that in itself is a really interesting accomplishment there's one more point i wanted to make and then i'll kick it back over to you but i was reading um much like you do when you when you read your dickens books you break out that gk chesterton volume of sort of commentary on each dickens novel and i right. i have one book like that that I refer to from time to time. And, it, and it's, a, again, it's from the NYRB press that we always bring up. And it's a, it's a book of commentary on Shakespeare's plays by Mark Van Doren, who was a Harvard professor. 
and I was reading about Macbeth in it, just just thinking about this and this discussion. And he was he, he makes a point early on about how Macbeth is such an incredibly economical and compact compact play, and it's like a, a work of genius just for how it's one of Shakespeare's shortest plays, and it's really like tight and compact, which also reminded me of the Coens. But he's got this line in it, and I thought, doesn't this line? It couldn't it? he's talking about the play, but couldn't it also apply to this entire film almost perfectly? And he says, the triumph of Macbeth is the construction of a world and nothing like it has ever been constructed in 2,100 lines. And I thought, well, that's the movie. <laughs> like, it's like, yeah. you know, it, it is the construction of, you know, that's, that's the triumph of this movie is the way he was able to construct this world sort of artificially in order to reflect, you know, a lot of the psychological themes that run through the play. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, what, what's, it's funny because you, you mentioned the Coen brothers and their previous catalog and how well this fits into it. I, I mean, I was aware of that, but I really didn't experience the movie that way. I, I, I saw it as very separately from all the Joel and Ethan Coen uh, films, even though so, all those connections and themes you suggest were all there, especially the moral murkiness. But this struck me as a very different thing. But in, in weird ways, it struck, you know, I know he was separated from Ethan making this, but it kind of, this was a really satisfying movie for me to watch in that, you know, I could tell from the early images and the trailers, this was like kind of like almost a dream project for someone like Joel Cohen in a way. I don't know if he feels that way, but it, it felt that way to me as the viewer. Because it felt like everything he had done previously contributed to how well he pulled all this off. And it just felt like this is one of these movies you watch, especially because of its like hybrid is a good word to use, you know, uh, fusing together of like a theatrical experience. And I'm unfortunately, I've never seen a Shakespearean play acted out on the stage in any capacity. So that's that's a big gap for me. I've always wanted to do that. But. And I don't know a lot about theater, but the way it's kind of like a fusion of theater and cinema experience. This was one of those films you watch and you just felt like, you know, like the, the filmmaker had command of everything at once. You know, and knew exactly, had a clear vision, knew exactly what he wanted to do and just executed it about as flawlessly to me as you could. Um, there are, you know, some things you could point out, but it's just the work of somebody who was just at the top of their game. You know, and I I didn't read any commentary on the play. I had familiarity with the play, like you you and I like you and I have watched different versions of it. In fact, you and I watched the Roman Polanski version of it together at your first house, probably twenty years ago. I remember mm -hmm. you had seen it already, and you were like, "You got to watch this," and we watched it together on like a little TV. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um. But, oh, gosh, where was I going with that? Um, well, I lost, I sort of lost my train of thought. But it was a, uh, uh, you know, I just thought it was like a great example of somebody who really knew what they were doing. Oh, I was starting to say, you read commentary about the play after watching it. I had seen a few different ver film versions of this play, and it kind of is my favorite one. Then I went back and I reread the play before seeing the movie, you know, 
And so I had some familiarity with it that way. What I wasn't as familiar with is, and I'll recommend this to you. I didn't get the chance to mention to you yet, but on YouTube or maybe on Apple TV, but definitely on YouTube, there's this about a 14 minute, uh, one of those making of or um, um, behind the scenes type of little mini documentary about making the movie. Oh, and okay. it, was, it was really interesting. I love those things, as we all know. It was really interesting to watch that. But I had no idea. I mean, I guess it's kind of obvious. You can kind of tell by looking at it. I just didn't know how much of the way the film was presented is done digitally, you know, like with digital art and images. So mm-hmm. the sounds get the sounds. I knew they made the movie on sound stages, but the sound stages that they filmed the movie on were very, very sparse. And almost everything else was done with visual effects. And it got into kind of like how Joel Cohen basically knew how he wanted to design things and then work with the animators and visual effects person to make them look like that. Like he did a sketch for one. There's one scene where the three weird sisters, the witches are up over the head and they're sitting on these rafters and he did a yeah. sketch of them. And it's one of the best shots of the movie and one of the, and probably my favorite scene in the whole movie, you know, that scene where he, in the play, it's like the, the witches around a cauldron, but Joel Cohen completely transforms it to be the witches are overhead on these rafters and the whole room is kind of the cauldron in a way. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's one of the most striking scenes of the movie. And, and he had sketches of exactly how he wanted that done. And it showed how they put it together with the animators and stuff. And it, more effects than I thought, but the end result is really sort of ravishing, you know? Yeah, it is. And, 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 and it's, it's interesting how, you know, I, I did a little reading about it too. And like a lot of the shots were, were, you know, kind of came right from his, you know, he's both the director and the adapter here, which that sort of surprised me too. Cause I always see Ethan as more because he's published books, but as more of the accomplished writer of the two, but you know, Joel Cohen does the, adaptation here which i thought was and that's pretty impressive you know but he made he made a whole bunch of deliberate choices in terms of how he staged <laughs> certain scenes and how they looked you know whether it be the the presentation of the three sisters played by one actor you know the way they're reflected in that pool of water you know there's two mm-hmm. reflections and one body standing there you know there's just all yeah. kinds of interesting visual touches i will say though you know without I, I was surprised. I don't think it's a perfect adaptation. There are a couple things about it that frustrated me. Um, I think it's incredible visually, but as an adaptation, I, I felt like it was, it, it's very truncated. I almost felt like it was a little bit rushed. There are, there are elements of the story, like for example, and I'm no expert here, but you know, I, I, I felt like, you know, Francis McDormand's character, you know, Lady Macbeth, she, she kind of slowly goes nuts through the play. And it's usually more of a transition. In this, in this version, I felt like one scene, she was just her kind of conniving and being logical. And the next scene, she was totally nuts. It was like a very abrupt. And I think that has something to do with the adaptation. You know, they definitely took certain parts out. The other thing is, I have to say I was a little disappointed. You know, one of the one of the big scenes in Macbeth that I've always remembered is that is the uh, Macbeth seeing the ghost when he holds a banquet after he's killed uh, Banquo, and there's a scene with the ghost. And in this film, I think there's just a fleeting image once of the ghost of Banquo, and it's not any kind of confrontation or anything. And maybe this is just my own taste. I don't know, but 
I felt like that was sort of handled very quickly. You know, the movie moves at a quick pace. And I think even though Macbeth is such an economic play, I, I do feel like this adaptation, there's a couple beats missing that I would have liked to have had. But, you know, that, that sounds like it's nitpicky. But um, I do have to say, like, when I finished, I said I really like this version. It's really interesting, really creative. I still think I like the Polanski film version better. There's something about it that uh, is grittier and kind of dirtier and uh, it's just a little bit longer. So I'm kind of surprised to say that because I'm such a big fan of the Coen brothers, but I, I, I was left wanting a, a little bit more. And there's also something about the artificiality of it that I respect, but maybe didn't love. So I, I really love this movie in general, but I, I don't think I could say it's my favorite version of Macbeth that I've ever seen. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I think it's up there for me. I could, But some of those things are valid. I, I never quite put it together, but I think I agree with you on the scene with Banquo because that is very fast. And I was kind of hoping for like a creepier moment there, um, yeah. but it just kind of blows by. Um, it feels kind of like a little bit of a lost opportunity. And then the end is kind of rushed. I, you know, I, I feel like it's rushed in the play. The whole aspect of the the army coming and inhabiting the woods and then cutting down the trees. So it appears that the woods are coming out, that the woods are moving. Yeah. In the, in the play, that's kind of rushed. But in this movie, that's like, you know, I was watching it with my 18 year old daughter and she was like, I don't even know what was happening there with the, with the branches and stuff. Cause it just wasn't really explained, you know, like some right. of the lines say like the woods are moving, but it was so, it was move, it was rushed so fast through that you didn't even you didn't understand what that even was trying to suggest, you know that they had come up with this ingenious tactic to cut down the trees so that it looked like the trees. It's a it's a way to advance the cover, in other words. But that that wasn't even you know that was very glossed over. The whole well, yeah, that's a perfect example. Uh, not to cut you off, although I just did, but like I think the way he handled that was that scene with Denzel Washington opening the windows and all these leaves come in and, and I've seen a lot of praise for that scene, but I kind of had an opposite reaction. Like, okay, that's kind of a cool visual, but that's not, that does not convey what is in the play to me. No, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. You know, it was a great visual and it has to do with the great photography and the images. And so there were flaws. Like I can, I'm, I don't know if I prefer it or not over the Polanski version, but I can respond to what you're saying about the Polanski. The Polanski version is much grittier, and and yeah. also, of course, famously was shot like on locations in Wales, so it has this like very harsh. Um, it's definitely a lot bloodier. It's not black and white. Well, and not, I, I'm sorry, I cut in again. But not only that, but it was the literally the first thing he did after the brutal murder yeah. of Sharon. So it's yeah. like. It's very bloody uh, intentionally. Yeah, and there was kind of a purge going on there. And you know, if there's any, if there's anything you can say about the Coen Brothers, because they're so good, or Joe Cohen is such an excellent filmmaker. I mean, if you yeah. go see this movie, I mean, it's just consummately done. But one crack on them is that they're a little dispassionate or distant. You know. Yeah. So you're not going to get that gritty. You're definitely not going to get the sort of the 
grief or pathos or whatever was being channeled into the Polanski version at the time. Right. You know? Good point. Yeah. Although I would say as a counter, I, I have seen great, the, the Kurosawa version, Throne of Blood, I saw a clip from that recently. I'm, I'm going to go back and watch that because I really that's a really good movie too. And I know one thing he did was he fused the three witches into one spirit and made it kind of like a ghost-like spirit like in the woods, you know, in, the, in like a Japanese theater, theatrical kind of tradition. Yeah. It's an interesting choice. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't know for sure if, but I would say if it's not, it's very close. Just on the three witches alone in the Joel Cohen's movie, with the brilliant casting of that one woman, Catherine Hunter, and her like contortionist, the way she, and her voice, the way she played the three witches makes the entire movie not missable to me. Like the few scenes that she's in, like there's an incredible one at the beginning, and then that scene we talked about later on. You know, it's worth seeing for that for sure. Uh, I agree totally. Both her and Denzel Washington, uh, just seeing him kind of dig into this material those are two of the the greatest reasons to see this adaptation alone yeah and francis mcdormand so denzel washington and francis mcdormand they've got like five academy awards between them they're no slouches you know and i really like francis mcdormand's performance as well i thought she handled the language beautifully i thought it was a little weaker towards the end for me like she kind of got sort of more crazier than and maybe this is just because Francis McDormand is such a forceful presence and actor in the first place. But when she has all her wits about her and she's trying to convince him of how to handle things towards the beginning, it was more effective. My favorite scene with her was the first scene she appears in where she's coming down that hallway, reading the letter about him seeing the three witches. And mm-hmm. then she muses on him having too much. She fears his nature and having too much of the milk of human kindness in him to handle this correctly. That was probably my favorite scene with her. Yeah, I agree. I thought she was less strong as the movie went along. And that's funny to say about her because she's such an incredible actor. But I I think it part of that, again, is the adaptation. It's just too abrupt. And um, but, you know, this is certainly a high recommendation. And just like especially visually, it's like it harkens back to everything from, like you said, Kurosawa to Orson Welles to. Um, like Carl Dreyer and some of those early horror films with its aspect ratio and everything. It's just really, visually, it's a feast. Bergman, like the seventh spring Bergman. and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. All right, so let's leave it off there, John. We'll kind of cut it off. We'll take a quick break. We'll talk just only really quickly about what we're reading next, and then uh, we'll close out the episode. All right, sounds good. Okay, back again to wrap things up. John, I don't believe that we have really decided on what is um, correctly episode 44, the next episode. Have we? No. And it, it, this is part of us. You mentioned at the be- at the outset, getting our sea legs back. We got to get back to teasing that at the end of these episodes so that people know what's coming. But w- this one, we have to decide. 
yeah, we still we got to do a little more work there. So we'll be posting social media and etc. Stay tuned for that. Um, John, what are you going to be reading next? So um, then I haven't even told you this yet, but I, I bought this. I, I got a gift card for Christmas. And, and this is a, a novel that I just bought for myself because I've I've simply I've really, frankly, been interested in it, you know, subject matter wise since I first heard about it. But it's one of these books. It's kind of written by sort of an it author right now, a woman of African descent. I don't know how to say her name correctly, but it's Ya Gyasi, Y-A-A-G-Y-A-S-I. Mm-hmm. She wrote a, a debut novel called Homecoming that was really highly praised, but I didn't read it. But um, so I, you know, I recognized it. And then her second novel, which just came out in paperback, it's called Transcendent Kingdom. And it's something of a mix between it. It has an African immigrant who's living in the United States. And it's a mixture of like uh, neuroscience. And also there's a character that's struggling with opioid addiction. But there's also a a large element of like evangelical Christianity and kind of this interplay between science and faith that I know nothing about. But I thought sounded like a really interesting mix of elements and i was just really intrigued from the moment i read that plot summary so i just decided to take a flyer on it and i'm going to read that next i'm i'm i don't know anything about it that or her but to me then the plot of it sounds really intriguing so uh, i'm just taking a shot at it here so you might find that interesting because i know you but uh, i don't think you've read her at all no, nope, I've definitely heard of her. Never read her. I'm familiar with the title Homecoming and Transcendent Kingdom. I haven't read either one. They both were really uh, renowned and uh, well-reviewed. So it's going to be interesting to hear your take on that. Yeah, what yeah, a wild just, choice. Just the title alone really kind of got its hooks into me. So I just think it's a fascinating mix of elements. And, and you know, we'll see what she does with it. Yeah, yeah, that's going to be interesting to hear back on. And uh, I'm going in kind of a really interesting direction, too. Um, after finishing Charles Dickens, I'm, you spoke earlier uh, eloquently about your interest in the natural world. I'm actually turning that way myself. There's a book I heard about. I saw it on a top 10 list for nonfiction books. It just kind of drew me in. I'm not even really familiar with this topic or, you know, we talked a lot about being from the Midwest, but I don't know anything about this really. But the book is called, I think it's, I think it's Death First. I believe it's called the death and life of the great lakes, but it might be called the life and death of the great lakes, but I think it's called the death and life of the great lakes. And it's written by somebody named Dan Egan, who is like a newspaper reporter in the Midwest. And it's about, it's nonfiction and it's about the uh, ecological disaster that is like right on the doorstep of the great lakes themselves. It's about the great lakes and the state they're in right now and how they're, you know, overlooked as being like, you know, 25 or 30% of fresh water throughout the globe, a fresh water source across the entire globe. But according to this book, they're on the precipice of just literal death, like ecological disaster. And it's part environmental missive and part reflection, but also part investigative reporting on how they got to where they are and 
it seems like it's kind of a prescription to how to get them back out and into a healthier state. And it just drew a lot of attention, won some awards, and the description of it looked really interesting to me. And I was just fascinated by it because I just I really don't know a darn thing about the Great Lakes. So that's my next read. Yeah, when you told me about this, I was I was really lit up. I had never heard of it. It sounds like the kind of book that I would I would totally read, but just to not know anything about it. And then you told me that you're going to read it next. I, you know, flew into kind of a fit of rage, you know, jealous rage. But then I, you know, then I calmed down. And it's interesting, just as a side note, because I, towards the end of the year, I talked, I really effusively praised that book of essays that was written by Megan O'Geeblin. Again, I'm probably murdering her pronunciation of her name, but she lives in Michigan along one of the Great Lakes. And so she, there's a couple essays in that book about living there and kind of the state of things there economically and the culture there and whatnot. So that sort of intrigued me a little bit too, but that sounds like an incredible book. And I, and I wildly applaud what a change of pace that is for you. So uh, although you're taking on two big, thick, meaty books in a row, so you know, somebody's going to have to give you like a, you need like a fast food meal or, or two after these like seven course buffet meals you've been having, you know, you got to go out and get a cheeseburger and fries in you know, the equivalent well, of that for your, for your next book. You know, there's always well, uncle Steve, there's always uncle Steve. So I was going to say, I usually go to uncle Steve for that, but <laughs> uh, you know, I've tried to address it, address it in my list of 12 books I'm going to be reading, but this book actually isn't that large, but it's a, it's a big topic. I think some of the Great Lakes got into me through reading Annie Proulx's Bark Skins, you know, and some yep. of the uh, lake culture around that. But I don't know. I mean, I, I just, you know, you think about those gigantic lakes and, you know, once you start going down that road, it's really interesting. I hope and expect to learn a lot from the book. So, uh, but anyway, that's going to do it for episode 43 um something a little bit different for the book exchange hope you all enjoyed it john it's been great to have this sprawling discussion with you and hit so many topics i feel like we've been talking for three four hours but we got <laughs> it in somewhere around two and uh it's been great to get back into it yeah i think our listeners probably if they're still around at this point probably feel the same way but hey listen you know it's our first show back after a long hiatus it's a little bit overstuffed but we hope there's something along the buffet line there for everybody. And uh, we'll be back in a more timely fashion for our next episode. But this has been fun. Thanks, dude. Thanks, John. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. And everybody, we appreciate you listening. Until next time, this has been the Book Exchange Podcast. Take care. So long.